You work for a tech company that has been around for over 80 years, and that company has been very good at building compelling hardware products and selling them to customers. But now, the executive team wants to aggressively grow recurring service revenues. And now you are being asked to scale a customer success organization that can nurture these recurring revenues. Besides the part about being around for 80 years, this desire to pivot from transactional to recurring revenues is prevalent among traditional hardware companies. So I think the challenges facing today's guest will resonate with many of our listeners. I am Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Today, I am speaking with Grad Rosenbaum, the VP of Global Customer Success at HP Inc. Let's get this Insight engine humming. Grad, welcome to Tectonic. Let's start here. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role at HP? Sure, Thomas, and thanks for having me on, Tectonica. Excited to join you here, and I've enjoyed the previous um, podcasts as well. So as you said, I am the Chief Customer Success Officer for HP. I've been doing that for 18 months now. It's the first time we've had this role at the company. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, But my responsibility is for all of our B2B customers, software customers, et cetera, we are a center of excellence for customer success for the company in our managed service business. Awesome. And, and before we click into the role in more detail, I want to talk about the fact that it's, it's no secret that HP is on this journey to migrate from being a company that sells products to a company that has more recurring services. And I'm curious because, again, this is a company that's been around for 80 plus years. What gets executives at a long-time hardware company excited about actually growing service revenues? What's the catalyst there? Gotcha, Thomas. It's a, it's a great question. It's a great product company. I've been here for 38 of those 80 years oh, wow. myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd like to say I've had a super good lens into the DNA of the company and the the passion of our executive leadership team. They have a lot of passion on services right now. And I think for a number of reasons, if I think about it, you know, number one, they know our customer base well, and they know the needs go far beyond building great products. And maybe the best example I could give you, Thomas, is a business we've been in since the late 90s, the managed print services space that we're in. I think everyone knows we're the worldwide leader in printers, but over 90% of our customers, especially in the enterprise space, are currently engaged with HP or another service provider and having a managed service wrap around their infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So in order for HP to continue to be a worldwide leader in printers, we have got to be a leader in managed print services or a services-led motion. So that'd be, you know, number one reason. A couple other, you know, we have good data at HP that this is good for our customers and good for our company. So if I think about our top and bottom line, it's crystal clear that with the expanded role we take on in services, we also expand our top and bottom line for the company. So that is of clear interest to our executive leadership team. Maybe another reason is our executives have promises to the street. 
So they went out to the street and identified five key growth businesses at HP, mm-hmm. services being one of them. Yeah. And we've promised $10 billion of growth in those five businesses and report out our progress against those five on a regular basis to the street. So that keeps them very much engaged with me and the rest of our services leadership team. And then maybe last thing I'd suggest, Thomas, is um, you know, we get great feedback from our customers in a more intimate fashion, a more detailed fashion because of our services relationship with them and more telemetry on how we're doing in those accounts, both on the devices, our services, et cetera. That's really invaluable to us as a company. There's a couple of reasons. Well, hey, let me click into two things there that you talked about. So first of all, this catalyst around growth, right? We want to go after $10 billion in growth. I would just observe that it's harder and harder for a product company, whether it's HP or anybody, to really keep that wind in the sail on growth without leaning into the service conversation, right? I mean, it just becomes such an important lever for overall top line growth. And I just think more and more hardware companies are just coming to that realization. But the second thing I want to comment on, so when did the managed print service business start? What year did you say? Uh, 1999. Yeah. So, wow. So it's been around for 20 some years. And maybe sort of educate the audience here, since you've been there since the beginning, right, of this business. What were some of the initial reasons that customers wanted to go into that model or that posture with you? What was the the value proposition that's been around for 20 years? Why did they say, hey, I, I want to be in a managed relationship. I don't want to just you know own these printers. Uh, I think a couple catalysts way back when, if I think about it, number one, our competition was leaning in and steering in that direction as well. So we were starting to get requests from customers that had very large HP install bases that were saying, hey, we'd be interested in exploring more of a contractual or a services-led setup with you versus buying your devices from you. That was number one. Number two, I think They saw the spend in many of the categories that we were supplying products to continue and to grow, but they didn't really have a good mechanism to build controls around that spend. So that was a second catalyst, I think. And then third thing, if I think about managed print, there was this real division, if you will, Thomas, between printers and copiers. And copiers started getting connected on the network. And anything connected on the network more than 50% of the time, it was an HP serial number going into those enterprises. Mm-hmm. But as copiers started to become connected devices and all the ramifications of that, yeah. customers started coming to us and say, hey, HP, we need you to think more broadly about all types of printing devices and the services around them. Yeah. And so that helped us evolve. We had been selling professional services in this space for a number of years, but it got us to move from a professional services start to more of a managed service offering in the late 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as you describe that. People have all of these printers and these copiers around. It's not their core competency to really manage that infrastructure and make sure that it's optimally deployed, right? right? And so I think turning to a vendor like yourself and saying, hey, hey, you you folks know this product better than us. Can you come in here with a value proposition to help us just really optimize the entire environment? And you know what happened with the printers and the copiers, do you see that same discussion carrying over to the, the PC side of the house where they start to asking that same question about all of these PCs that are deployed? Absolutely, Thomas. This is a very fast-growing space for us right now. We're leveraging 20 years of managed print services experience and over 10,000 customers in MPS to pivot that install base 
to our managed device service offering, but many of the same problems exist. Yeah, I would think. And many of the same interests with our customer base exist. So yeah, we've got a number of growing global customers that do both manage print and manage device with us today in the workplace setting. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this space, but I would think that for any decent sized enterprise, there's got to be a lot more money on the table with all your PCs and laptops and everything that's out there than your printers, right? In terms of, again, just managing that cost effectively, the inventory, the security issues, all that stuff, that's got to be just a huge financial opportunity, right? To optimize that. So that's interesting. Yeah, terrific business for us. Um, They're different though, Thomas, you know, so what it takes to um, manage a customer's printing infrastructure around the world is very different from what we do in managed device services in terms of the services we have to provide to the customer. Yeah. Uh, but some of the problems are the same. Yeah. Some of the value drivers that they're looking for from us or our competition are similar. I would think, and again, I'm not the expert here, but looking at those two different worlds, one thing, if you think about security, right, around printing devices, copiers, et cetera, versus the value proposition and security around a device, right? Because a company could have the crown jewels on that PC, right? In terms of company information or access to systems, et cetera, et cetera. And so any kind of value proposition to say, hey, we can better track those assets and know where they are, make sure they've got the latest software, security software. I mean, that has to be, again, pretty compelling conversation. For sure. And just to be clear, it's as much of a conversation around printing as it is around the device. Both uh, types of endpoint devices are easy inroads for the bad guys to get in. And so we spend a lot of time in our professional services org and in our managed service business in terms of managing those endpoint devices, whether they be printers or laptop devices or any other type of compute device to help our customers Keep the yeah. bad guys out. Yeah, interesting. Let's pivot now more specifically to your role. And, you know, it's interesting, again, as, as a product company builds more recurring revenues, one of the things that they typically then need to do is establish a customer success organization that is making sure customers are going to renew those service contracts, right? That they're going to basically stay on the platform. And I'm curious, how did HP first incubate CS? Because my understanding was, I've known you guys for a long time. I thought at first it was a regional model. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, you have a good memory for sure, Thomas. So we did not until 18 months ago have any kind of centralized customer success function, leadership capability. It grew up literally in the countries and markets that HP did Mm -hmm. business in. And so that has its own outcomes as a result of doing that over 20 plus years of allowing the markets to really build their own vision, their own model for how we did customer success. As our customer base became more and more global and more and more of our revenue and managed services was global, it became increasingly important that we standardize how we implemented customer success within Mm -hmm. the company. But it started out, to get back to your question, it started out the way many customer success organizations from what I've learned started out more of a offloading the sales organization, providing operational Mm -hmm. support, technical support, and making sure that we got renewals in our managed services agreement. It was pretty basic kind of account delivery type function in the beginning years. Yeah. And I think that, so if you're a born in the cloud software SaaS company, typically you incubate customer success as, you know, as a global function. 
you know, it's core to who you are. But uh, what I've seen, like you commented, a lot of hardware companies, if they're starting to get more recurring revenues and they're incubating customer success, they will do that at a very regional level, right? And the thinking there is, hey, look, each region knows its customers best. They know what the needs are there and they can optimize the customer success motions based on what's going on within their market or region. But I can tell you from doing org structure surveys on this topic for years and years and testing for org structure versus things like scalability and profitability, there's no doubt there's an inflection point that if you really want to get serious about customer success, you have to globalize it. You really start to need to build common practices across regions, economies of scales, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like that was some of the catalyst as a company to say, hey, look, we're really going to need to globalize this. Is that fair? Yeah, it totally is, Thomas. You know, I, I'm going to remember a lot of things over my um, 35 plus years at HP, but uh, I'll never forget what happened that led to a global customer success officer. Maybe a, a couple words on that. Yeah. Um, I, at the time, a couple years ago, I was running the America's P&L for services and I was having a blast. It's like a, it's a great job at HP. I did it for a number of years. But when I looked at what we were doing in customer success and how non-standardized it was, as the business continued to grow, as our managed device service business started to take off, all of the limiting factors of having a non-standardized, non-centralized customer success were getting more and more apparent to me. And I actually went back, Thomas, to your team first and just said, hey, I'm picking up on a real opportunity at HP. I think we need to tackle, here's my findings. What do you think? And I got some great input from your team. First of all, Thomas, but oh, great. I took that back to our chief commercial officer first mm-hmm. and I asked him, you know, is this something you want to spend a few minutes comparing notes on? Because I think we need to do something differently here. He picked up on it right away. We had a great conversation. And to my surprise, he sent me on to our CEO next. Okay. I didn't think that was where we were headed, but I took the same discussion, the kind of gap I saw to our CEO, Enrique Laura, as our current CEO as well. And I walked Enrique through it. And at the end of the conversation, I'll never forget this. I said, Enrique, you got a lot of things on your plate right now that we could be leaning in to focus more on. Is this one you think we need to address? And he rather adamantly said, we absolutely do, given our focus on services. And this is like one of those careful what you ask for, because I was... (laughs) Spotting something that I thought the company needed to do, yeah. not asking for a new role. Yeah, yeah. And it turned into, we need to do this, grad, and we'd like you to take on the responsibility of doing it. Yeah. For the first time in 35 years, Thomas, that's how I ended up in a global function, a global role. Well, I've never done that. Yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> some inside baseball here, right? I mean, I can really appreciate the consternation, trepidation you probably had with taking that role on because, as you said, I mean, you're a long time you know, I'll call it a geo guy, right? You know what I mean? You're running a region and we know in models like that, the regions are sort of their own kingdoms, right? I mean, the Americas does its thing, Europe does its thing. And so you're running that kingdom in a sense, right? Making a lot of the decisions all within a nice tight enclosed P&L that influences your world. And now you take on this global responsibility and you know, you personally know all of the baggage that's going to come with that, trying to now coordinate CS across regions that are used to operating very autonomously. So you clearly had to go into that thing with eyes wide open, knowing that this is going to be a a big challenge, a needed capability, but clearly a big challenge. No question. We're a big, complex animal at HP. And and, not to mention, 
the bulk of our revenue continues to come from product sales yep. as well. So first getting on the market leaders radar for transformational change we need to make in services, even that, it takes a little bit of effort inside of HP, given all the competing priorities within the company. But I was very, very well aware stepping into the role that a cut and paste of how we do things in America as to the rest of the world was not going to work right. as I took on this new role. So we had a lot we needed to do, Thomas, in order to you know establish the swim lanes and establish a customer success organization for the first time. Yeah. And so and let's let's click into that because I think there's several unique challenges in this scenario of building customer success. Again, the fact that you're mostly a product company, now you're just getting into recurring revenues, you have to establish this capability. The fact that you're a pretty, again, what I, I call geocentric model where the markets are creating their own strategy. Now you're trying to create more of a global capability. And then the other challenge you have here is, again, a company that's been around this long you have these very well-established customer-facing roles that have been in play for a long time, right? Between your salespeople, your support specialists, your professional services people. And now you create this new CS role, CSMs, new CS capability. So how did you sort of establish the new swim lanes, right? Of, of how CS was going to work with all these other well-established customer-facing roles? Yeah, it, it's been a very busy last 18 months, first of all, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. And we have gotten some great help externally as well. Of course, from TSIA, which we've leaned on heavily, but also Accenture and Deloitte. Yep. And I'll give a couple of examples, Thomas. So we documented the job descriptions and even job levels of our customer success managers to one consistent approach for around the world with the help of Accenture. Mm -hmm. And then I did what I've been told by TSIA, I did the largest assessment of a customer success population that your team told me they're ever aware of. We assessed over 400 customer success managers for what our future vision of the role would be. So you're assessing, you're assessing skills there in a sense, right? You're saying, hey, right. we have these folks. Now we have a definition of what we would ideally want the global role to be. And we're doing that matching, right? We're trying to see where there's fits, where people have to be developed, that type of assessment. Yeah, for sure, Thomas. If, okay. you know, if you think about 20 years of doing it differently in all the different in the markets around the world for HP, we yep. had quite a wide variety of skill sets and backgrounds in those roles. So we wanted to get one baseline to start with. So that was after writing consistent job descriptions and then changing the job levels, we also wanted to know what is the caliber of every single one of our people as best as we could assess them with the help of Accenture as a baseline start. Yep. And then we use that for a number of people selection type processes, et cetera. But we also use it to drive our training investments and training yep. priorities. You know, where do we want to put the time in to upscale people around the world? Where do we need to focus on? We did a lot of work with Deloitte around process standardization, process documentation. We've done a lot of work in terms of building out documented races mm -hmm. with sales with our sales operations team, with our service delivery team, and many other functions within the company. This wasn't in place. And maybe one more example that I think is really helping us right now, we didn't have a consistent account segmentation strategy yeah. for how we would deploy customer success managers around the world. So to keep it really simple, Thomas, in some markets, they use all onshore resources in certain ratios for their accounts. Mm -hmm. In other markets, they use on and offshore, but different ratios. We yep. now have one consistent account segmentation model that we're deploying 
not only the customer success managers, but any other service delivery related resources to the account. We have one consistent view in the company of how we're going to deploy resources into the accounts that didn't exist before. Yeah. and, And so critical because as you're talking about that, and you and I have had this conversation over the years that we've known each other, is creating that consistent experience for global HP customers, right? Because if you're a global customer and you say, look, I have a managed service global contract with you and I have a different customer success experience in the Americas than I do in, you know, wherever, right? That's not good. You want the customers to have a consistent model there. And I actually want to back up to the skills mapping that you did in assessment, which I think is really interesting. Was there any patterns there when you did that global assessment? And again, the fact that all of these CS organizations grew up with different models, when you did the global assessment, were there any patterns in terms of skills that were sort of consistently missing that you really wanted in the CSM? And you said, okay, for sure, globally, we're going to invest in you know this type of development. Or was it just so much variance? There were some patterns that I wouldn't say was 100% consistent across everyone, but but emerged as areas that we needed to work on. One was uh, tied to business acumen and P&L management. Oh, interesting. Um, Okay. That's a key skill that we expect as sort of the general manager of their business within their accounts. Mm -hmm. And we had a group of people around the world that had some operational skills about how to get things done, but didn't have the level of business acumen and P&L stewardship that we wanted yeah. uh, our customer success managers to have. That's one. The second was sales skills. Oh, interesting. Yep. We, yep. We, we found that, again, that a number of them that were more deep operationally mm-hmm. didn't have as good a negotiation and customer engagement skills as we wanted them to have. So that, that's two examples that I think emerged as priorities for us. Yeah, and I think that that pattern is common if you look at the history of customer success. So, you know, this is a function that, again, doesn't matter if you were a born-in-the-cloud SaaS company or a hardware company starting it up. People created initially to focus on adoption of technology, which means that those folks will often be very close to your technology. They'll be sort of more operationally oriented from that perspective. But as this function has matured, it does have a very critical role to play in account management, right? It really is super important, which leads to the next question I have for you on this is the role of CSMs with commercials, because that continues to be a hot topic with the industry. Can CSMs have any responsibility around contracts and renewals or not? Should they just leave all that to the sales? I think you have a pretty strong point of view on that. So what are the expectations you're setting for your CSMs as it relates to being involved with renewals and helping with expansions and those types of things? Yeah, great question. And I gathered from a number of TSIA sessions, et cetera, that we tend to do things a little bit differently at HP on this. So let me try to describe. Um, First of all, we also standardize our comp plans for our CSMs, and we pay them on a variable pay structure tied to revenue and margin growth in their accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, That, for starters, is different than many of yep. uh, other companies that I've talked to. I'm not exclusively different, but I don't find as many that have that Correct. in their compliance as, as we do. We do task them with upsell, cross-sell, and renewal mm-hmm. expectation in our managed service accounts. I mean, they're involved, Thomas, for at least three to five years. But if I look at my install base, many of them have been involved for 10 or 15 or more years. We yeah. have a lot yeah. of tenured people and tenured contracts. So they know those customers really well. They're involved day in and day out, many times assigned one-to-one to to the account. And so we really hold them responsible for 
making sure the customer gets everything we promised in the sales motion and more, and also that the company comes out in a good way from a top and bottom line as well. And that's why we've tied the comp to it, but we don't do this exclusively. So Mm -hmm. to get back to your question about sales, we don't remove our sales organization from our managed services customers for a couple reasons. One is we may have a managed device service arrangement with a particular bank, but they buy their printers in a different motion, not contractually. Okay. So sales continues to stay involved for all the other products or product support services that we might want to sell the account that's different from the managed service arrangement that our customer success manager is engaged in, uh, number one. And number two, we keep them involved to complement our customer success managers in terms of executive relationships and the overall account strategy for the account. Sales continues to be involved. But our goal is to have customer success take the dominant amount of day-to-day responsibility for the deliverables in that managed service contract to Mm -hmm. offload sales. So they have more time to spend elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So as I play the back, I mean, the CSM, again, is about the value realization on that contract. And your contracts are typically, what, like three to five years? I mean, they're they're pretty... Exactly. Yeah. So they're pretty long contracts. Okay. We've just signed this really long-term big deal with the customer. We got to make sure that they're getting the value, that we're delivering the things we said we would. That's the CSM. You know, we don't want our account executive, our salesperson has to get dragged back into that conversation weekly or monthly, whatever. We want them, you know, focused on looking for the next big opportunity, whether it's new logo or new opportunity expansion, you know, big expansion within that account. I'm curious, the, the one thing, though, because I've heard this from other members that have longer term, more complex contracts like you do, is when that renewal comes up, how do the sales and the CSM work together on that? Kind of what's the roles and responsibilities there? Because, you know, typically in your case, if there's a big contract renewal coming up, it's a big refresh, might be big expansion opportunities, might be going competitive. I mean, there's a lot of variables in play there. What's the role of the CSM and what's the role of the, the account executive there? Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Thomas. I mean, our our goal, like many companies are, is to prevent this from ever going to RFP, first of all. Yep. So yep. they're working way upstream together to build out the business case, the sales plan that enables a client to bypass an RFP and renew. And in many cases, we're successful doing that based upon demonstrated value against what we promised in the pre-sales motion. Mm-hmm. Specifically, how are they working together? They are working hand in hand together. So we don't put 90% of the renewals responsibility on customer success. Mm -hmm. They work closely with sales. Sales continues to be gold on the revenue in those accounts. So they they have compensation. So both parties have compensation on the line, if you will, when that big deal. Okay, got it. They both have a revenue expectation. And so if I kept it really simple, I would think of sales as being the overall responsibility for account strategy overall, mm-hmm. overall decision maker on should we you know, do X or do Y yep. with strong input from customer success based upon their in the account every single day involvement. Yep. Yep. So again, if I play that back, I mean, sales is basically saying, and we say account strategy, right? You're thinking in terms of how we're going to maximize the revenue, the growth, you know, the profitability, all that stuff, that's a, that's a sales lens. And then the CSMs mapping to that and giving input because they know what the customer's really doing, not doing, where the friction points are, where, you know, where they see some of the opportunities. So that makes good sense to me. You got it. So I've got one final question for you, and it's 
broad based here, but uh, just curious, you think you said 18 months in this chair of, of, of a global CS organization. What levers are you pulling to cost effectively scale this CS organization now? Yeah, this was one of the main catalysts back to your earlier question too, Thomas, for why do we need a center of excellence or a global function around customer success? It's a hot topic for us. You know, a lot of what we deliver is in the office. And Mm so we really, given what has transpired over the last few years, you know, we're really focused on our cost structure at HP, like many other companies as well. So I'll give a couple examples. One, I already mentioned that global account segmentation model. Where do we use onshore? Where do we use offshore? Based upon whether we deem an account to be a segment one, two, three, or four, what are the level of resources that we're going to deploy in the account? Mm -hmm. So we've moved to that segmentation model. and, And that alone, we think will take millions out of where we spend in customer success and related resources assigned to our accounts around the world. We're also investing in tools long overdue. So for 20 plus years, we have existed without a customer success platform in place. So our customer success managers were waking up every day, Thomas, with over 20 different data feeds from across HP to try to get their job done. One of the first things I did when I came into the job was um, build the business case, get the funding, drive the RFP, make a decision around deploying a customer success platform. In, in our case, um, we had a number of good options, but we decided to go with Gainsight. Mm-hmm. We see a real productivity improvement once we turn the lights on for Gainsight, which will be later this year, 2023, the first customer success platform in the company as well. The process standardization stuff that I commented on earlier is helping us not only move some of the tasks to offshore lower cost resources that our customer success teams or others were bearing the burden of, but also looking for opportunities to automate those so we could get the labor out completely. So we've been focused on that as well. And I think getting the right level of resources as well assigned to our accounts. So again, we didn't have a consistent way around the world of what type of person we were trying to attract, hire, and develop in the role. We do today based upon the segment of the customer that they're going to be serving and getting that right job leveling in place for the company is a big driver of, of getting our costs in line with where we want to go. Yeah. And when, you know, when you talk about the tools side of it, right, I'm shocked that you can't run off of Excel and just do all your CS business off of that. <laughs> but the, um, I, you know, to me, and, and having lived through this, even through our own company, as we've scaled, you know, a customer success capability and the gentleman who runs that for us, um, Andrew Cromie, you know, we had this conversation, you know, several years ago around, hey, we, you know, we need a tool. We got to put something in. And, you know, I pushed him really hard on that in the sense that I said, look, if we're going to make this investment, because anytime you're going to roll out a tool, it doesn't matter what tool, as you know, it's not insignificant investment, right? I mean, and, and sure. you know, and then it's not just the licenses, it's the training, it's the deployment, it's getting everybody to use, it's all that stuff, right? And I'm always cautious on that because in, in just like your environment, I'm sure you have a lot of other, you have a CRM, you got other tools running around. So it's like before you deploy something, do you really want to do this? And I think in the world of customer success, you know, what we really focused on with that technology is it really is automating a lot of the calls to action and the processes for the CSMs. Because I think one thing that people, and I, I'll speak you know, for the sales side of the house, I, I often see this, the, the people don't appreciate the daily life of a CSM 
is the volume of activity they have. Mm. The sheer volume, right? And, and like you mentioned, you have four account segments, right? And once you get off one, you know, you get out of two, three, four, you get down to these smaller size accounts. Usually you have a CSM who has tons of accounts that they're managing. And their job is to make sure customers are engaged, that they're adopting, that they you know, have any issues. Is it onboarding? Is it this? Is it that? You start to stack that up across all these accounts and their day-to-day to-do list gets pretty stinking long. And if you have no automation in there, right, where some of that stuff is being taken care of for them, right, automatically sends this email, automatically result, you know, does, if there's not some of that going on, it's really hard to solve this with labor. Really hard. So I think that, you know, that investment is one that is really critical if you're going to cost effectively scale this thing. You've got to automate some of this stuff. It was long overdue, Thomas. And, um, you know, credit to our company, like, like many other companies, we're taking aggressive cost-cutting actions in so many places. So this was pure incremental spend. Yep. As you mentioned earlier, it adds up not just the licenses, but all the other related costs. Yep. And also, it was a big time investment for the company to stand this up. And no, it's huge. You know, they made a decision to go forward. We're super excited about it. It's going to be a journey. It's going to take us time. But yeah. even some of the most basic things like taking a 10,000 plus install base and really understanding at any level within the company, what is the customer health situation and the actions related to that? What critical renewals come up and what's the optimal time to renew, mm-hmm. et cetera? Yep. A, a number, and I could go on and on, but we got a number of use cases where I think we really move the ball forward for HP yeah. um, based on what we're going to do here. Yeah, I mean, that takes just a a little rabbit trail here. We're doing some uh, research right now around AI and the capabilities that we see deployed across different functions, right? So how is AI being used in revenue management? How's it being used in support services? And how's it being used in, you know, customer success as an example, right? And Mm. that research is going across all of our different research practices. And we just put a paper out called the TSI's AI Capabilities Landscape, which identified over 70 different use cases of AI across these different areas, the types of areas I just mentioned. And so when the research team was working on that, I have to tell you, Grad, I, first of all, I was kind of blown away about how many use cases are already on the table. All right, you know, like predictive churn analysis, kind of what you were on right there, right? Um, renewal analysis, adoption assessment, personalized support and assistance and personalized education. There's just like so many use cases that are already unfolding, number one, that can really enhance our business models, create a better customer experience. And then also some of the potential cost savings are just astronomical that these mm-hmm. AI tools can can deliver. So I, you know, there's a lot of hype around AI obviously right now, but I, I'm working on a paper right now with George Humphrey that's going to come out about why we really believe TSIA that AI is going to fundamentally change the way our technology business models operate. I mean, every, you know, CS, support, PS, education, sales, everybody is, their workflows are going to get altered based on these AI capabilities. So it's going to be really interesting to see how quickly it unfolds, but I think it's definitely going to unfold. So I encourage everybody out there listening, man, keep your eyes on this one because this is not all hype. This is really, I think there are going to be some some game-changing capabilities for sure. I think for me, Thomas, that's like um, mission number one for next month out at your conference is to soak up what you have to say and all of your members have to say about what is working well, yep. fastest, best, for them is a hot topic for us as well. Yeah, no, it's it's huge. In fact, just a little preview here. 
So, you know, we're talking in Vegas, we're spending time around how we break down some of the organizational stovepipes that exist as a precursor. So one of the things I know, what's hampering people's ability to leverage some of the AI capabilities that are already on the table? It's data. And it is data silos. And it is basically the fact that organizationally, we don't have a 360 holistic view of our customers, right? Because there's data locked away in support and in a product and the CRM and whatever. So we've got to start breaking those silos down. And then the conference, the following conference in Orlando is going to be all around interacting on AI use cases. Every track is built around that because we believe that, you know, you go another six months, there's going to be more use cases that are on the table here. And, And again, my personal biggest fear for some of the member companies is I talk to them is I think right now people are intellectually curious about AI, mm. but it's sort of like an art project. You know, like you talk to them, hey, we're piloting this AI thing in sales and we're piloting predictive support and we're pilot. But when you really bring them back the lens and you say, what's the company strategy? How are you funding this? How are you prioritizing? How are you driving lessons learned across departments? That's still very immature in tech, I will tell you. It's very immature. Mm-hmm. But I think, and that's probably fine right now, but I think if, if you're a, a tech company and you wake up a year from now, let's say, or, or 18 months from now, and AI is still somewhat of an art project, I think that's going to be a problem for you. Because I think uh, people mm-hmm. that are leaning into it, getting their lessons learned and deploying, they are fundamentally changing their cost structure and the value proposition they can deliver to customers. So it's, I think it's going to move quick. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, well said. Totally agree, Thomas. All right. I'm watching the clock here. Thank you so much for your time today. I like to always uh, close with our question of the day. And, and, you know, for a traditional transactional technology company uh, like an HP Inc. or anybody, there's so many companies that come from that heritage, growing recurring revenue, it's not a simple task. It's a new muscle. But here's the question of the day. If you are not growing recurring service revenues, are you going to meet your overall growth aspirations? Cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody.